0: pretty bullish on that stock, especially at current levels. You know, it's been wiped out recently, wiped out. And that's because it is the quintessence of a long duration asset Mm -hmm. that the stock market or that Wall Street has loved to hate over the past few months because Mm -hmm. this is a pre-revenue company. So not just a money losing company, but a pre-revenue company, a pre-product company. It's as early as it gets. This is venture investing folks. Mm -hmm. This is not what Wall Street is used to. They're used to revenues and cash flows and profits. QuantumScape has none of that. QuantumScape, it's a science project.
1: Welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis. And as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are the BIPs doing today? Uh,
0: BIPs today, Aaron. Bips, uh, BIPs today, BIPs last week. Stocks just staged their, their best week since 2020. Hypergrowth tech stocks are, are rebounding back with a uh, reckless abandon right now. So things are good. Hyper BIPs are, are back
1: in action. Well, that's good to know. And I'm sure we're going to get into all of that in just a few moments. Uh, but if you're joining us for the first time, Hypergrowth Investing is a weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we will take an in depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. We go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to like, and subscribe to get hypergrowth growth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, we got a ton of topics. Uh, we're just gonna go ahead and dive right in. Uh, mm-hmm. first topic for today is uh Quantumscape. Uh, Quantumscape is a oh. battery company. Um, but before we kind of get into them. What uh, can you describe a little bit? What are solid state batteries, and how are ba- how is battery che- technology actually changing? Uh,
0: yeah, great. So QuantumScape, fascinating company. Uh, definitely need to understand the science uh, behind solid state batteries to understand the bull thesis on QuantumScape and all solid state battery makers for that matter. Um, so lithium ion batteries—they are the status quo uh, for batteries today. The batteries that power your your smartphone, your computer, uh, electric vehicles, they are the batteries that power the world. Now these batteries are built on top of liquid battery chemistry. So what that means is that you just, in a very elementary oversimplified sense, a battery comprises an anode, a cathode, and an electrolyte between the two. Um, ions flow between the anode and cathode when they char- when the battery charges and recharges. Um, and the uh, anode, or the ions flow through the electrolyte. Now, the lithium ion batteries that are built on liquid battery chemistry, so the predominant majority of, of batteries today, pretty much all batteries today, have a solid cathode and a solid anode, but they have a liquid electrolyte. So the solution between them is, is a liquid. Now, that works well to an extent, but the problem is that liquids are less dense than solids, so you can only compress a lithium ion battery built on liquid battery chemistry so much you can only compress so much so the density of it the energy density of a battery cell uh can get maxed out and right now we're sort of hitting that maxing out point so why can't electric vehicles drive faster or drive uh, farther why can't electric vehicles recharge Faster? Why can't your smartphone last for two, three, four, five days? Why can't your smartphone recharge itself in five minutes? The answer to all those questions is because we've maxed out the energy cell density of liquid based uh, lithium ion batteries. So the breakthrough, the potential breakthrough here is turning that liquid electrolyte into a solid. So you have a solid anode, a solid cathode, and a solid electrolyte, with the science behind that being that solids can be more dense than liquid. So you can really compress the heck out of this thing far more than you can a a liquid-based battery. And therefore you can create much more effective batteries that are much smaller. Electric vehicles can drive farther, recharge faster. Your smartphone can last for days, recharge in five minutes. Your computer can last for days, recharge minutes, so on and so forth. So in doing this and switching from liquid to solid electrolyte, we could fundamentally alter uh, the way things work in society. Electronics work in society because everything these days is an electronic device of some sort or another, then the transition or rather leap to solid state batteries represents a complete paradigm shift in society that will unlock a multi-hundred billion dollar, if not multi-trillion dollar revolution uh, across a lot of walks of life. Um, So that is the exciting sort of science behind solid state batteries. Now, solid-state batteries are exceptionally expensive to make. The science is very complex, and no one has really effectively done it at a scale large enough to power anything that matters. So this is still a lab project for all intents and purposes. The leader in that lab project race right now is QuantumScape. Um, They have the most proven solid state battery concept that is working on a very tiny scale and as they've been scaling it up to bigger and bigger and bigger batteries granted still very small batteries not enough to power anything that matters but as they've been scaling it up over the past year year and a half their solid state batteries have proven to work very 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 well um so we're very bullish on their technical lead in the space now, on top of that, the company has a ton of resources. They have so much cash on the balance sheet because they raised a bunch of the private markets. They raised a bunch through their SPAC IPO, SPAC merger acquisition uh, in late 2020. So this, this company has a ton of money on the balance sheet. Uh, Volkswagen is pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into them. So they also have the support of Volkswagen. They're partnered with two of the top, I believe, five auto, two of the top 10 auto OEMs in the uh, world today. So they have the partnerships, they have the resources, they have all these things that are going to allow them to hopefully uh, extend what is an early technical lead in the space. And perhaps what matters just as much as everything I've just said is that they have a have an exceptionally talented team of engineers working on this technology that we we study the solid state battery industry uh a lot and relative to all the other competitors in the space quantum scape has the most talented engineering team that should allow them to extend their early technical lead and become the the 400 pound gorilla in this space by 2025 2026 2027 when these batteries start to actually make their way into the real world. So that is the short of the bull thesis, maybe not so short, but that is as short as it can get, uh, the bull (laughs) thesis on QuantumScape stock.
1: So what makes uh, QuantumScape uh, different from other companies that are doing the same types of research, aside from, you know, the things that you just described, like money and talent? Is there a difference in technology, the way that other companies are approaching these batteries? Uh, Is it the way that they're storing the energy? Or is it just, you know, this is where this is the most advanced research that's going on right now. This is where the money's going. This is why they're the leader.
0: Yeah. So I think you have to understand that. um, Yes, there is a there is a technical difference. Quantum scape. So the big problem in solid state batteries is something called dendrites. And dendrites are the fact that when you create something so energy dense and you have this solid through which you're transporting ions that Through each charge-recharge cycle, this really dense material starts to fracture, starts to rupture, and cracks start to form in it. Those cracks are called dendrites. Over time, those dendrites build up and they cause the battery to short circuit. Mm -hmm. So dendrites are a huge technical hurdle in solid-state battery development. QuantumScape has a unique sort of ceramic material, proprietary design. Nobody knows what it is besides people at QuantumScape Mm -hmm. uh, that eliminates the problem of dendrites. So they've shown through on a very small scale mm-hmm. that their batteries can charge and recharge through multiple cycles without dendrites forming in the electrolyte. And that is a breakthrough of breakthroughs when it comes to solid-state battery development. Um, so that is sort of a technical difference that QuantumScape has achieved that other uh, solid-state battery makers have yet to achieve at the scale that QuantumScape has achieved it. So that, that is a huge difference for QuantumScape, technically speaking. Um, but beyond that, even if they didn't have that, we would still be excited on QuantumScape because you have to understand in emerging growth industries, like solid state batteries, what matters is talent and money. Mm-hmm. That's what matters. Because as I said, these are lab projects.
1: Mm-hmm. Everybody's
0: still trying to figure this out. Nobody's Nobody's cracked the code. Everybody's still trying to figure it out. And so let's say it's, it's like a fifth grade science fair and everyone's trying to figure out how to complete a task, how to do a project. Which team are you gonna bet on? You're gonna bet on the team that has all the kids that get A's in science class, right? <laughs> That's the team you're gonna bet on. Yeah. That is QuantumScape. QuantumScape has the Stanford back and they have the Stanford name. They have a huge Stanford pipeline. They have really top level engineers and they have all this money that they've raised to attract even better engineers, because at the end of the day, engineers are going to go. The best engineers are going to go where the most money is. That's mm-hmm. just where they're going to go. And then it becomes this sort of self fulfilling prophecy because you attract five or six top level engineers from Stanford. Then all of a sudden, the grads after them are like, "Wait, that's where you know I I knew Johnny A. He went to QuantumScape. That must mm-hmm. be a great company. Oh, they're offering me one hundred fifty two hundred thousand dollars starting. That's well, whoa. You know. Mm-hmm. Then I'll say, okay, I'm going. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, this positive feedback loop, where all of a sudden they just have this talent pipeline that allows them to durably attract top-notch talent. And that is what matters in this industry today. Because like I said, this is a fifth-grade science project. Mm -hmm. Well, not a fifth-grade science project. It is a (laughs) PhD science project. Yeah. But – it is a science project nonetheless and the people that are going to figure it out are going to be the smartest people in the room and that's why i want to align myself and and the people that that follow me with the smartest people in the room and quantum scheme collectively they're the smartest people in the room uh in solid state battery technology development and that's why we're we're pretty bullish on that stock especially at current levels you know it's been wiped out recently wiped out and that's because it is the quintessence of a long duration asset Mm -hmm. that the stock market or that Wall Street has loved to hate over the past few months, Mm -hmm. because this is a pre-revenue company. So not just a money losing company, but a pre-revenue company, a pre-product company. It's as early as it gets. This is venture investing folks. Mm -hmm. This is not what Wall Street is used to. They're used to revenues and cash flows and profits. QuantumScape has none of that. QuantumScape, it's a science project. Mm -hmm. but it's the most exciting science project on the planet Earth right now. And if they succeed in this science project, the revenues, profits, and cash flows they're going to produce by 2025, 2026, 2027, 2030 are going to be enormous. And at the Mm -hmm. current valuation, it really discounts that potential tremendously, Mm -hmm. so much so that I think it is a super compelling buy below 20 bucks in this mid-teens range that it's trading at right now. Absolutely love the stock.
1: So I think you just kind of described it a little bit, but how far away are we from seeing this in an EV, an electric vehicle, in our computers, in our phones? Uh, you know, battery technology traditionally, like you've described already, hasn't really changed in, since, you know, the advent of batteries. So, you know, are we looking at, you know, is this a yeah. five year, is this a 10 year? When are we gonna start seeing this battery in, you know, actually integrated in our daily lives?
0: realistically, I would say the first half of the 2020s, you're not going to see any solid-state batteries um, on, on the road in electric vehicles that you see every day. I think there will be a few prototypes out there that none of us are going to actually see, kind of like the self-driving cars of today. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, there are some in Phoenix and some in Houston, but on an everyday basis, we don't see them. In the back half of the 2020s, we're going to start to see solid-state batteries make their way into uh, electric vehicles that are made by Toyota, Ford. Volkswagen, so on and so forth. And you're going to see them account for maybe five to 10% of electric vehicles on the road. And then by the 2030s, I think solid state batteries, as the cost decline curve continues and progresses, and as the cost of solid state batteries plummets, I think you're going to start to see solid state batteries become the incumbent solution for electric vehicles. So this is a market that's kind of like, if you think about that hockey stick growth, Mm -hmm. we are in the first two innings of that growth Mm -hmm. and it's going to be very gradual over the next few years. And then come 2026, 2027, you could, that's when the hockey sticks going to start taking off. And that's where I think you're going to see tens of millions of cars get outfitted with, uh, with solid state batteries uh, at that point in time. So this is definitely a long-term play, Mm -hmm. but It's a long-term play you have to get in early because it's a long-term play that has so much potential and which Wall Street's already getting in on, which venture capital money's already getting in on. So yes, it's many years out, but place your bets now because the race is on. Horses are running and you have to you know claim your horse and and get on it and run this race or else you're going to be left behind. So that's why we think you got to get in early on solid-state battery development, despite the fact that it's still many years away.
1: Will this be an actual energy solution long-term as well. Like not just. Ah,
0: yeah, that's that. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that angle. I don't know how I let that slip my mind. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> um, solid state batteries to the top of this, this, uh, this call. Solid state batteries aren't just about electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Batteries yeah. power everything. So, And all those batteries are based on liquid battery chemistry, or most of them are. So you, you do this paradigm shift from liquid to solid, and all of a sudden, you're not just talking about electric vehicles. You're talking about every electronics device in the world. And perhaps most potently, you're talking about energy storage solutions. Mm-hmm. So you know we are hugely bullish on energy storage. We mm-hmm. think the grid is going to be decarbonized. Mm-hmm. We believe solar, wind, hydrogen, all those things are going to become the incumbent uh, uh, energy sources of this world, not because of saving the planet and tree-hugging and stuff, but because the cost curves on those Maybe. things have positive learning rates. We talked about learning rates last week, yep. right? Um, those things have very positive learning rates. Fossil fuels do not have positive learning rates. Therefore, within the next five to 10 years, solar is already cheaper than fossil fuels. Within the next five to 10 years, solar, hydrogen, wind, they're all going to be substantially cheaper than fossil fuels. So it's going to be an economic decision, not an environmental one. We might hide it under the guise of environmental (laughs) friendliness, but the reality is we're going to go green because it's going to be way cheaper to go green. That is a fact. So Mm -hmm. the grid's going to decarbonize because of economics. As we decarbonize because of economics, we're going to need energy storage solutions to back up that power because solar wind, they're intermittent. So you need to store them when the sun's not shining, when the wind's not blowing hugely bullish on energy storage. We think there's going to be batteries everywhere that are backing up um, grids. Mm -hmm. So those batteries are lithium ion batteries. Mm-hmm. They're based on liquid battery chemistry, which mm-hmm. means they too are maxed out in terms of energy cell density. They can only charge uh, or store energy for up to four hours. or duration a four hour duration storage. Mm-hmm. That's not very good and that's not very suitable for the needs that we're going to have for these batteries by 2025, 2030. The solution, solid state batteries. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you build these energy storage solutions on top of solid state batteries, and boom, you're talking eight hour, 10 hour, 12 hour, maybe 24 hour duration. You're fundamentally changing the calculus behind how much energy and how long these batteries can store that energy. Everything changes. And that's why QuantumScape recently partnered with Fluence, Mm -hmm. which is one of the, the world's leading lithium ion battery energy storage solution providers, because QuantumScape realized that, hey, Volkswagen's gonna use our batteries to make their cars last way longer. Mm -hmm. Fluence can use our batteries to make their energy storage solutions last way longer. Mm -hmm. So now QuantumScape partnered up with Fluence and boom, they're working on developing solid state batteries for energy storage and applications. That is a massive market. The stock has not really reacted to that news way understating the potential there. The potential there is <laughs> enormous. So yes, QuantumScape is not, we're not just talking about a paradigm shift in transportation in the auto market. We're talking about a paradigm shift in the entire energy market. Mm-hmm. And QuantumScape's at the forefront of it. Mm-hmm. Granted, QuantumScape is very risky. Like mm-hmm. I said, it's a science project. This mm-hmm. is a science project. But the risk reward profile, the potential downside from current levels versus the potential upside that asymmetry is so attractive and in favor of bulls right now that I think you just you have to nibble on shares below twenty. It's it's so so attractive as a long term play. So yes, love QuantumScape, love the energy angle. Thank you, Aaron, for bringing that up. I totally <laughs> let that slip my mind.
1: Well, uh, going off the paradigm shift in electric vehicles, uh, want to touch base again on Neo. We talked about it a little last week, and uh, it was you know having a lot of. It was in the headlines for a lot of different reasons, but it was kind of down and you had your own thesis on it. Uh, since then, I think you have been proven right, but do you want to discuss a little bit what happened, what happened with Neo last week, in the past week? Yes,
0: so we talked about it last Tuesday, a week mm-hmm. ago from today. Um, and yeah, the stock's up about 50, more than 50% since then, mm-hmm. about 55%, I believe, as of as of this filming. So, yeah, the stock has, has come rip roaring back. And we said it was a pounding buy at 14 bucks and change. It's above 20 now. So mm-hmm. things are going well for Neo. They have earnings on Thursday. Um, mm-hmm. That could be a game changing moment for the stock. But before we get to that, let's talk about, you know, we talk about why it was beaten up. It beaten up because of China delisting fears. Yep. Uh, it was beaten up because of surging metal prices affecting electric vehicle prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was beaten up because of concerns about COVID-19 production of electric vehicles or uh, China production of electric vehicles being hampered in 2022 because of COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, so it was it was beaten up for all these reasons. And then what we said last week, right, was that these are near term headwinds that are going to pass mm-hmm. that. None of these things actually really matter in the big picture, and that they're going to pass and the stocks are going to come roaring back. So it's so freaking cheap right now. Well, <laughs> a week later, they have basically come to pass. Um, China delisting fears. Well, the Chinese government came out and said, we're going to back you guys, the mm-hmm. two Chinese tech companies. We're going to back you. You are you're being audited overseas. There's there's talks of delisting. We're going to back you. We're going to make sure you don't get delisted. Mm-hmm. So now the Chinese government's all of a sudden throwing its weight behind Neo stock, essentially, and other Chinese tech stocks from getting delisted. So delisting fears have basically gone away. Gone away. Uh surging metal prices. Nickel's been tanking. You know, everyone was concerned about nickel going to. 60 70 80 90 hundred thousand a metric ton mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. those prices have been collapsing yesterday nickel was down 15 percent. they had to halt trading because it was down so much mm-hmm. so nickel prices are collapsing i actually think when you look over at the russia ukraine situation because mm-hmm. uh, that's why nickel prices are soaring because of uh, russia's a huge exporter of nickel and sanctions against nickel fears of that so that's why nickel prices are soaring mm-hmm. but i think when you look at that russia ukraine situation we are looking at a situation that's probably going to lead to a ceasefire pretty soon Mm -hmm. because look at it from Russia's perspective. Russia thought they were going to come in there and just kick butt and take names, Mm -hmm. right? They thought it was just, you know, going to waltz in there with our massive army, take over. The world's going to say, okay, whatever, do it and game over. But the exact opposite has happened. Nothing has gone according to plan for Russia. The Ukrainians are putting up one heck of a fight. I Mm -hmm. mean, they are putting up an amazing you know, tip of the hat to them, an amazing fight against the Russians, holding their own. The rest of the world is basically declaring economic warfare on Russia. The economy is getting destroyed. Russian citizens are speaking up, saying, what the heck is going on? Our livelihoods are being destroyed because of your crazy actions, Mr. Putin, come on. Mm -hmm. So... I think that Russia is now in a situation where they are much more open to uh, diplomatic uh, resolution to conflict in Ukraine, and I think they will come to a diplomatic resolution. So if that does happen, uh-huh. if we come to a ceasefire, if there's some diplomatic resolution to that conflict, this surge in nickel, nickel prices and metal prices, which is already moderating, will completely evaporate and go away entirely. Uh-huh. So. That headwind, which was uh, hurting neostock and electric vehicle stocks, I think is pretty much passing as we speak. Mm-hmm. The other headwind was COVID-19 lockdowns in China hampering production. But President Xi came out and said, hey, um, for the first time ever, he said, I don't want COVID-19 lockdowns to hamper economic activity or change people's way of lives in China. Like mm-hmm. We can't let that happen here in 2022. So it looks like COVID-19 lockdowns are not going to hamper electric vehicle production all that much or for all that long in 2022. So that headwind is also as we speak passing. Mm-hmm. So all these headwinds that were really weighing on Neo Stock and kind of acting like an anchor on the stock have all of a sudden and lifted mm-hmm. and now the stock is firing off like crazy because it got beaten down to such depressed levels. <laughs> I did the analysis last night I was I was uh, calculating what is neo's market cap mm-hmm. per projected 2022 delivery so for cars that are projected to deliver in 2022, we think they're going to deliver about 150,000 vehicles this year. Mm-hmm. So what is their market cap per car delivered in 2022 projected? and it's about Mm $225,000. Now that compares to Tesla, which is above Mm $600,000 per projected 2022 delivery. And Lucid and Rivian are both above a million dollars per 2022 projected delivery. So when you look at Neo relative to its competitors, because you have to understand Neo is making cars that have over 500 miles of driving range, that have over 500 horsepower, that go to zero to 60 in less than three seconds. These are high quality, high performance, high tech luxury EVs. That's a unique class. That's Mm -hmm. Tesla, that's Rivian, that's Lucid, that's Neo. Mm -hmm. In that class, Neo is trading at threefold, fourfold, fivefold the discount to its peers, Mm -hmm. which means that as these headwinds, if they do continue to pass, and if Neo does report positive earnings on Thursday and deliveries are actually continuing to trend in the right direction, this stock could absolutely roar. Twofold, mm-hmm. threefold, totally in the cards. A run back to 40, a run back to 60, definitely possible. Mm-hmm. And that's why we remain constructively bullish on Neo stock even after it's fifty percent pop over the past week.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned their earnings report is coming out on Thursday. Is there anything we should be looking at with Neo?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we, we know what the delivery numbers look like to date, um, but we, yeah, we're yeah we going to want to get an update on the the guidance for deliveries in, in the second quarter. Um, we're going to want to get an update on how gross margins are trending, their input costs are trending, because again, we're talking about a surging uh, metal price environment. Do they mm-hmm. see that surge persisting? How is it impacting margins? Uh, we're going to look at their cash flow situation, their cash burn, where does liquidity stand today? And I think honestly, Neo is going to report pretty good uh, numbers on all those fronts, and that's going to juice the stock because you have to understand the stock's price for disaster. Even if those numbers aren't great, they're just okay. like decent. Decent's good enough to get the stock to work at twenty bucks. Okay. So, um, I think again the risk reward profile, and you know, that's what it's all about in investing: risk reward profiles. Mm-hmm. It's not a sure thing. Definitely could could make a uh a test back down to fourteen, mm-hmm. but. I think that when you look at the risk war profile on Neo stock, it was super attractive last week when we talked about yeah, it. At 14, yeah. But it's still very attractive here at 20 bucks. And if you have time on your side, uh, definitely a good buy
1: here. Awesome. Well, uh, shifting gears a little bit, doing our general market checkup. Again, kind of uh, checking in with what's been going on with the Fed. We've been doing that every week pretty much since we started this. Um, awesome. They had that long-awaited meeting. Uh, that ripped the Band-Aid off moment, as you have been kind of talking about for, for weeks and weeks now. How did no. this meeting actually fare against expectations?
0: It actually went a lot better than what I thought. And I okay. was the bull going into it. So yeah. <laughs> um, it turns out the rip the Band-Aid off thesis is playing out even better than I would have ever hoped. Mm-hmm. Um Stocks, like I said at the top of the call, stocks have staged – they staged the best week since 2020 last week. So uh, the whole market rallied. And that was – there was a big rally on Tuesday leading up to the Fed. Okay. Then we rallied before the Fed spoke on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. dropped when the Fed came out and sounded super hawkish, but then Mm -hmm. just rebounded with vigor and had a huge rally into the close. Had a huge rally on Thursday, had a huge rally on Friday, uh, gave back a little bit of gains on Monday, and then had Uh another huge rally on Tuesday. Uh So we're looking at very unique price action today. Indeed, what we saw was that the NASDAQ rattled at, at some point last week, had rattled off three consecutive days of gains greater than 1%. It was actually four consecutive days, but at the time we ran the analysis, we ran it on Thursday afternoon. Mm -hmm. So they had rattled off three consecutive days of 1% gains, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the total net gain over that period was in excess of 7%. It was about 8% action. Mm -hmm. That is very rare trading action. It has only happened three times before over the past 20 years, and every time it did happen, it was either at or very close to the bottom of a sell-off in tech stocks. Mm -hmm. And over the subsequent 12 months from it happening, tech stocks rallied anywhere between 20 to 40%. So the price action today is getting pretty, pretty bullish. Pretty, pretty bullish. Um, Why is that? It's because the Fed injected certainty into the markets. Mm-hmm. There's this whole notion out there that it's rate hikes or the fear of rate hikes that, that is killing the market. And that right. is total hocus pocus, bogus, hogwash, whatever word you wanna use in there. I can't curse, so I'm gonna keep it PG. <laughs> um, but that is just totally nonsense the stock market can handle rate hikes. Mm -hmm. There have been 12 rate hike cycles since 1970. The Mm -hmm. average Mm -hmm. annualized gain in the S&P 500 during those rate hike cycles is 10%. That's Mm -hmm. a good gain. Stocks perform well during rate hikes. Last rate hike cycle, 2016 to 2018, late 2016, late 2018, stocks did well. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand that this whole notion that rate hikes work against the stock market Not true, not true, Mm -hmm. historically false. What the market doesn't like, what does work against the stock market is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The market hates uncertainty. And what we had in Fed policy between December and March
1: was so much uncertainty. We'll let you know. We're going to let you know in March, but we're not going to give you anything. Well, what happened
0: is what happened is that in December, they came out and sounded still pretty dovish. Like they said, they're going to hike three times in 2022, but that mm-hmm. was still super dovish. Mm-hmm. Then we got red hot inflation in January, red hot inflation in February. We entered a war. We got yeah. soaring oil prices. Yeah. So we had this still pretty dovish sounding Fed mixed with all of this inflation crazy uncertainty and mm-hmm. what that created is a lot of uncertainty as to well what's the fed going to do now yeah like are they going to stay dovish are they going to hike what are they going to do mm-hmm. and i think the market celebrated the fact that last wednesday powell finally put his foot down mm-hmm. and while he's still saying you know we're going to monitor the situation and we're going to be dynamic and respond to current events um and the incoming data he did kind of st- very firmly set a path forward that or set the precedent that so long as inflation remains hot, we're going to fight it. Okay. We're going to fight it with 25 basis point heights at every meeting. And if we need to, we're going to fight it with 50 basis point heights at certain meetings. So okay. that's hawkish. That may be a bit spooky, but it's also certain. And we know what they're going to do. They're going to fight inflation. That certainty has reinjected stability and confidence and bullish uh, sentiment back into the markets, and that's why you've seen stocks rally in a pretty significant way uh, ever since that decision, ever since mm-hmm. the the statement came out, ever since Powell's press conference. We and Powell even sounded a more hawkish tone on Monday of this mm-hmm. past. Week. You know he, that's when he opened the table up for multiple fifty basis point hikes, mm-hmm. and you saw a yield surge. So you're seeing hawkish Fed finally. Okay, but. Contrary to what a lot of people thought, that's coinciding with the market rally, because mm-hmm. a hawk is fed on one hand is certainty. And on the other hand, it's fighting inflation. Mm-hmm. So the, the goal here, the hope is that the Fed in doing all of this, will quell inflation. Mm-hmm. So by 2023, we are not in an inflationary environment that uh, we are actually in a two percent inflation environment that still has solid employment and that's a good environment to be invested in. so I think there is hope that the Fed is going to succeed in its efforts to fight inflation and they like the markets like the fact that there's certainty so that combination is what is allowing stocks to to head higher on the back of that fed decision
1: so now that we have a little bit more certainty, what does this readjustment now look like for the rest of 2022?
0: Uh, the readjustment in, into in the
1: rest of 22 markets. in equity markets yeah uh
0: yeah i i think this is the beginning of of the emergence of a new hypergrowth bull market okay um i believe on this call before and i know i've i've mused about it multiple times in in my uh investment products um but the precedent here is the last rate hike cycle mm-hmm. that The Fed hiked rates in late 2015. And then for a year, there was total uncertainty. They didn't hike rates, but at every meeting, people were like, are they going to hike? Are they not going to hike? It was total uncertainty throughout uh, Mm 2016. During that time, hyper growth tech stocks, long duration assets, risk assets, underperformed meaningfully Mm -hmm. because it was uncertainty around Fed policy and how they're going to impact rates. But once the Fed hiked rates again in december 2016 Uh and actually embarked on a consistent and steady rate hike cycle from late 2016 to late 2018 those same beaten up hyper growth tech stocks went crazy in 2017 kathy wood's arc fund returned greater than 90 Uh percent that's an amazing one-year return and it was in the same year that that last rate hike cycle got started because uncertainty was removed certainty was injected those stocks have been so beaten up heading into that decision that their valuations were benchmarked for a worst case outcome you didn't get a worst case outcome the stock soared i think you're going to get the same situation here how do equity markets adjust i think you're going to get a new hypergrowth bull market emerge i think stocks are going to perform just fine and i think that the worst of what we've seen is is over um, I also think that a, a ceasefire is going to happen in Russia, Ukraine. We already talked about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to provide some some lift to the equity markets. Um, I think the COVID-19 situation in China is going to get handled uh, pretty quickly. I think that's going to provide some lift to markets. So I'm starting to to sense this shift in risk appetites in the equity markets. And that shift is going to benefit the assets that have been most beaten up over the past few months. And allow them to stage some pretty incredible rebounds over the next few months, um, and that is, yeah, that's my outlook for the rest of 2022. I'm, I'm very bullish on where uh, hypergrowth tech stocks, in particular, can trend over the next
1: 12 months. We we also touched on this last week, and I want to know: has this also affected insider buying? Has that spree kind of continued, where the where you know people are buying up all these uh, shares of uh, the companies yep. that they're invested in?
0: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So okay. We we did that analysis last week, and we found that the you know there are about five hundred million dollars worth of insider purchases across one hundred and ten different transactions in Hypergrowth Tech stocks over the span of three mm-hmm. weeks. It was a surge that we'd never seen before in that specific mm-hmm. group of stocks. Uh, and then since we did that analysis every single day, there's more okay. uh, CEO buys here, COO buys here, board member buys here, insider buying. There's there stock pops of insider buying here. We've read every single day since then, we've read multiple headlines per day mm-hmm. on more insider buying occurring. So we haven't redone that analysis. We plan mm-hmm. to redo it later this week to incorporate the, the last week of insider buying activity, mm-hmm. but we're seeing it in headlines everywhere. We're checking the filings. Yes, that insider buying spree has continued and perhaps even accelerated over the past few days. As and in- that, that gives us a lot of confidence. Yeah. That gives us a ton of confidence. That I want to put people, I want to align them with the CEOs of these companies. Mm-hmm. I want to align them with the inside of these companies because those are the people that know the most. I can sit up here and talk all I want about solid state <laughs> batteries, about flying aircrafts, about solar and space. A mm-hmm. lot of At the end of the day, I am still an outsider looking in, looking through a glass window. Mm-hmm. I do not know as much as the insider of the company. I mm-hmm. don't plain and simple, and nobody does. And if you do, that's insider trading and that's illegal. So no. uh, I am on the outside looking in. These guys are on the inside day to day, working with this these businesses, working with these technologies mm-hmm. and they're buying. Mm-hmm. As an outsider looking in, I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Count me in, count me in. And the fact that the buying is so widespread across so many different stocks and it's multiple insiders in these companies. It's not just like the CEO is going all in. It's like yeah. the CEO is going all in and the COO and the CFO and the board members are hopping in the action too. Oh, and the hedge funds that are 10% owners and have board seats, they're back in too. Mm-hmm. It's such widespread insider buying and it gives me a ton of confidence um, in a lot of the stocks that we own that are benefiting from this insider buying. So. Yeah, that is a really bullish indicator on top of everything we just we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So you got price action improving, you got the insider buying, you got the big scary rate hike in the rear view mirror, you got what could be a Russia-Ukraine ceasefire in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got China saying COVID-19, we're, we're not gonna allow that to be a problem again. All of a sudden, all those risk factors that look like world-enders or <laughs> economy-enders a few mm-hmm. weeks back are now looking like little boo-boos. Mm-hmm. And the market is responding by rallying, by going higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that, does that mean we're out of the woods? Does that mean everything's, you know, coast is clear, go full bull, everything's crazy? No, you know, like always have some caution, always stay a bit reserved in markets as you have to do the risk markets, always be monitoring the risks. But I think it does mean that where we stand today is a lot more bullish place than where we stood two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and from that perspective, if you were waiting, now is the time to get in. If you already got in, keep riding the wave, um, higher and on the next big leg lower, take some more nibbles because the, the 12 month outlook here is starting to shape up pretty, pretty favorably. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, well talking about how the fed is combating inflation. Uh, one of the things that I want to kind of go into right now is, uh, You know, there are a lot of short-term fixes for combating inflation, but one that I want to talk about right now is a potential long-term fix in automation. Uh, And I want you to kind of discuss real quick, how does automation impact inflation?
0: Yes. Okay. So inflation has been muted for up until Mm COVID-19, up until 2021, actually. Um, had been muted for three straight decades. Uh, throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s, and throughout the 2010s, inflation, core inflation struggled to sustainably break 2%. So mm-hmm. That's three straight decades of core inflation struggling to break 2%. What happened? What happened was technology. Mm-hmm. What happened was the World Wide Web launched and the internet became a thing. And companies started using the internet to more cost effectively and time effectively produce uh, goods and services at lower. Um, you know they could make more at lower cost. Mm-hmm. Automation is the next evolution of that. Okay. Automation is so technology at its very core is cost saving and time saving at its mm-hmm. very core because you replace humans with a technology platform or service that doesn't require a salary that can be you know doesn't require sleep doesn't have bad days. Um, So you take something that is innately imperfect, a human, uh, something that is innately flawed, something that is innately needs money, that innately needs sleep, that innately has other needs beyond work and replace it with something that has none of those shortcomings. Uh, That is automation. So how does that fix the inflation situation? Well, it is the anti-inflation weapon on steroids because uh-huh. why is inflation so bad uh covid-19 caused production shortfall because we couldn't put multiple people in a factory together we had to six feet separate them and they had to wear masks and that probably hampered how much they could make uh-huh. machines don't get covid <laughs> machines don't get covid i you know really? so an automated factory can be up and running through world-ending pandemics and through booms and busts it doesn't matter they don't get sick uh-huh. so they don't need COVID-19 restrictions. So it fixes it in that way. Uh-huh. Another big driver of inflation, labor inflation. Uh-huh. So there's this huge um, labor shortage in America right now for various reasons. We don't have to get into why that's happening. That could be an entire separate call, uh-huh. but there's a labor shortage in America that's causing labor inflation. Uh-huh. So not only are companies not finding workers to fill certain jobs, uh-huh. but the workers they are finding, they're gonna have to pay a premium for because the, la- the workers have all the leverage. Robots though, you know, we can make a lot of robots, all of a sudden there's no shortage of robots and their price is not going to continue to inflate at, uh, at a labor cost. So, and on top of all that, one robot can do what multiple people can do. Mm-hmm. So you're saving money on labor costs via uh, replacing many with one. So that's one way it fights labor inflation in, in a dramatic fashion. So across the board, I think automation is really going to be the ultimate weapon against inflation. And it's going to allow companies to get back to low cost production of goods and services, even in an inflationary environment. And if enough companies do that, the inflationary environment becomes once again, deflationary as it has been for the past three decades. So that is how automation sort of fits into the wheelhouse of inflation and why I view it as the necessary tool to win the fight against what is very damaging inflation today.
1: Well, uh, Chipotle is making, is employing a tortilla chip making robot named yep. Chippy. Yep,
0: uh, and it's
1: even programmed to make some imperfect chips. Uh, yep. I believe that the company that's providing this robot is Miso uh miso robots in is this going to be like the the new norm and not just again in in higher tech factories like something that's going to make like an ev but in our day-to-day lives like a place like chipotle
0: yeah so i um so miso is a company that i'm very familiar with i i know two of the founders at miso Mm -hmm. um actually played basketball with one of them in college so miso is a company that i'm very familiar with they're a bunch of really smart people doing some really smart things uh, and when they first started the company, the whole the whole idea was that uh, labor automation in restaurants is going to be a necessity because wage inflation, uh, because these companies have poor unit economics as is. Uh, they need to improve those unit economics because wages are going to go up and that's going to essentially destroy the unit economics. They need a replacement for that. Uh, robots are going to be the replacement for that, allow them to produce just as much food or just as much revenue on a much lower cost basis, thereby improving Uh, their profits and overall um, value of the company. So that was the original pitch. And this is like back in like 2017. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this is way before any of this stuff we're talking about is happening. Uh, That was the initial vision. Now here we are in 2022 and we have that vision just screams to every restaurant operator in the world right now. So it's no wonder Mm -hmm. that they just got the deal with Chipotle. I mean, mm-hmm. they have a burger mm-hmm. flipping robot, and that burger flipping robot is in a few restaurants, burger chains here in, in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Chipotle one is, is different because it's not a burger flipping robot. It's a chip making robot. Mm-hmm. Chippy. The burger mm-hmm. flipping robot is flippy. This is chippy. <laughs> uh, I love it. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Very, very cute. Um, yeah. They have they have great engineering minds and apparently great marketing minds, too. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so the fact that Chipotle is doing this is of no shock to me. Yes, mm-hmm. it's it's a microcosm of the entire trend we just talked about. Automation is the solution to inflation. Um, mm-hmm. This is what restaurant operators are going to do. They're mm-hmm. going to consistently and continue to adopt these automation technologies, like Miso is working on, burger mm-hmm. flipping robots chip-making robots, next would be burrito-making robots, steak-frying robots, la lottie, do mm-hmm. Automation is going to allow these companies to unlock a new level of economic productivity that they didn't think was possible. And they're gonna do so with uh, an increased incentive today because if they don't, their profit margin is gonna get destroyed by higher wages.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so that's why we're really bullish on all automation technologies. Miso is is a very fascinating company in the space. Unfortunately, they're not public, so you can't mm-hmm. buy the stock. They do do uh, crowdfunding. They're, mm-hmm. The backers over there are huge on a crowdfunding investments. So next time I do a crowdfunding round, I'll be sure to let you guys know you can get in on it. Um, <laughs> but for now, me so just kind of like keep monitoring them. But mm-hmm. there are some public market plays that you can get in on today to ride this automation wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't say the names here for reasons that I've stated before. Got to keep the, the products um, secret a little bit. But the... <laughs> There are a lot of great stocks to buy to play the automation wave and it's, it's a good time to buy them. Right now is a really good time to buy them.
1: Well, I know you can't get into those specific companies, but is there any other automation tech that you're excited about? Ooh, yeah, there is.
0: I don't want to give away the companies and saying these things. I'll be brief. Um, okay. Warehouse automation. We're okay, huge on warehouse automation. On automation. Um, and we are huge on autonomous trucking. Okay, got it. I think those are two industries. When when you're looking at automation, what you want to understand is that what is easy for a robot is Mm -hmm. not necessarily easy for a human, and what is easy for a human is not necessarily easy for a robot. Mm -hmm. So you can't think of robots as just replacing all the low the, the, the jobs that are easy for humans to do, because those mm-hmm. jobs might not be easy for a robot to do. Okay, What is easy for a robot to do is a job that is modeled by, or can be modeled by a lot of data mm-hmm. and a lot of predictable patterns and workflows. Mm-hmm. Trucking fits that billing because truckers go on preordained routes. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. go on um, big roads, And there's a lot of data that you can model from these test drives that allows autonomous trucks to become a thing. Mm -hmm. Warehouses are the same situation. Everything is organized, filed, sorted. They have, you know, codes and skews and whatnot. And so a robot can learn those things and perform tasks in a warehouse very easily. So those are two areas we're pretty excited about uh, to ride the automation wave. And that's as much as I'll say for now.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, in that case, I want to shift gears again. Uh, something that you talked touched on last week, and I know uh, our viewers wanted us to get back into it this week, is you talked about last week uh, that you want to talk about solar power in space. Um, can you talk a little bit about what are the latest developments in space solar? Again, I know you mentioned last week your alma mater, Caltech, is making moves here.
0: Yeah, so space solar is really interesting because when you think about space solar, um, like why? Why? That's that's the first important question. Why? Mm-hmm. The why is that the sun does not shine every day everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's intermittent. At the same time, space is a lot closer to the sun than the surface of the earth. Mm-hmm. So if you were to put a solar panel in Nevada, mm-hmm. And you were to put the same solar panel in the space above Nevada, Uh AKA the orbital above Nevada. That space, that solar panel in space Uh is going to generate significantly, magnitudes more power per square foot of panel Uh than the one in Nevada on the surface of the earth. Because the one in Nevada some days is gonna get clouded You know, it's gonna be cloudy there. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna get sun. Uh, And it's significantly farther from the sun than the one in space. So this panel in space is gonna generate way more power than the one on earth. Mm -hmm. To that extent, if you really want to power the world by solar Mm non-intermittently and doing so without significant costs, what you wanna do is you wanna throw a bunch of solar panels on a rocket or on a satellite put that satellite on a rocket, launch that rocket into space, have that satellite deploy those solar panels and have those solar panels orbit the Earth and then just beam power back to Earth. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is the utopian solution here Mm -hmm. because you can do so at very low costs and with exceptionally high efficiency. Mm -hmm. And you can power the whole world that way. So that's the why there. The technical challenge is how on Earth (laughs) do you get solar energy from a panel in space back to Earth? Yeah, yeah, that seems how do you beam it back to Earth? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Okay. I'm gonna say full disclosure, I have no idea how we're gonna do that. <laughs> but I do know mm-hmm. that some of the smartest people on the planet Earth mm-hmm. are actively figuring out how to do that. And some of those people are at Caltech and they've won a huge grant to Mm -hmm. go ahead and research space solar and try and figure out that very problem. So I'm confident we're gonna figure out the problem relatively soon, that's how the human species is. We figure out problems, we problem solve. Mm -hmm. And when we do figure it out, some companies are gonna commercialize this and it's gonna be a huge economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it gonna be the solar companies that are on earth? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it gonna be a small rocket launch company like Rocket Lab? Rocket Lab has been really looking into this. They just filed a patent for this stuff. Maybe I don't know. It's uh-huh. way too early in the game. It's even earlier than solid-state batteries. I would say. Uh-huh. Uh, and unlike the solid-state battery world, where you do have clearly defined leaders, uh-huh. there is no leader here. This is this is academic research. Uh-huh. This is some companies throwing stuff against a wall and seeing what sticks. Not truly investable today. Uh-huh. Not really like I can't you know say this is the horse you want to pick. Yeah, but a space you want to monitor because soon enough, some horses are gonna to start to emerge as leaders and you're gonna to wanna to jump on those ASAP because this is a huge opportunity. Space solar is a way to solve the world's energy problems. And I think it's a really, really, really exciting space. Um, and if, if, you, if you do wanna play it today, if you do wanna play it today, mm-hmm. the one way to play it is through small rocket launch companies. Because the reality is that what we're probably gonna end up doing is we're probably gonna end up sending up a bunch of little solar panel farms. We're not gonna like launch a huge, solar panel array in space and then, you know, it basically acts as like this cloud. No, we're gonna be sending up a bunch of probably small ones. So that means these these things are gonna get launched on small rockets, Rocket Lab, Astra, companies like that, small rocket companies, not a SpaceX. I think it's gonna be those small rocket companies that are gonna be the ones that not necessarily make the solar panels, but launch them into space. So it should be a huge, Mm -hmm. space solar should be a huge demand driver for small rocket launch companies. And that's where Rocket Lab at Rocket Lab and At Rocket Lab <laughs> Rocket Lab and Astra. It bolsters the bull thesis on those two stocks, Space Solar does. So that's the way to play it today if you want to get into it. Mm-hmm. But if you want a, a pure space solar play, mm-hmm. you're gonna have to wait and just monitor the monitor the developments in the space.
1: So, are you more excited about the direct solar space opportunities that are kind of going to eventually present themselves, as you're describing, or are you more excited right now with kind of the potential with these, uh, you know, picks and shovels plays with the rock with the rockets and bringing the? No,
0: man, honestly, honestly, both. And that—that's the exciting thing about the the space economy. The space economy—it's—it's it's an economy in and of itself, mm-hmm. a world economy in and of itself. There's going to be suppliers, there's going to be people that actually make the solar panels, people that, you know, be in the energy back, people like, there's going to be so many components to this mm-hmm. that there's lots of ways to invest in it. Just like there's lots of ways to invest in the iPhone. Are you going to mm-hmm. invest in Apple? Are you going to invest in the glass maker? Are you going to invest in the mm-hmm. chip maker? You know, like who are you can invest in it's all across the supply chain. There's a lot of ways to invest in the iPhone. There's going to be a lot of ways to invest in various different space things. And so that's why we're really excited about the space economy, because we think that Wall Street really misunderstands the opportunity therein across the supply chain of space. Now, it may not be that they misunderstand it. It Maybe that these these are just long duration assets and long duration assets have been hammered recently. But that's an opportunity for multi-year investors because Mm -hmm. eventually and inevitably, the space economy will become a very large thing that influences large swaths of our lives. And the companies that have the best products in space, the best services in space, mm-hmm. the best markets, those companies are gonna be worth a whole lot of money one day. You gotta be patient with the stocks, mm-hmm. but if you are patient, you will be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're excited about space stocks across the value chain, not just one specific category.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, again, Caltech is, like you described, it's academia, it's, you know, doing the forefront research. Is there, are there any company, I know that you said that there's nobody that's really kind of running with this right now, there's no horses, but are there any existing companies that are at least looking at this technology?
0: Yeah, so like I said, Rocket Lab is looking at it. Rocket Lab is doing some cool stuff here. So I would say of all the publicly traded companies that I'm aware of right now, (laughs) Rocket Lab appears to be the most interesting play. Okay. on space
1: solar. Got it. All right, well, shifting gears again, uh, we haven't really touched on this topic for the last few weeks, I think, but want to check in on cryptos. You know, a lot of people are excited about it. Um, basically, the first question I have for you is, are cryptos still tracking growth?
0: yes entirely uh the correlation between cryptos and growth is very strong the correlation between bitcoin and the arc funds uh very 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 strong so cryptos are being treated like a risk asset they will continue to be treated like a risk asset Mm -hmm. so where cryptos go can be answered by uh where do risk appetites go and Mm -hmm. as we said earlier we think risk appetites are improving right now. We yeah. think that with given the macroeconomic backdrop and the developments mm-hmm. we are seeing unfold, the price action we're seeing unfold, the insider buying that we're seeing, we think risk appetites are massively improving at the current moment. Mm-hmm. With those risk appetites improving, you're seeing growth stocks outperform and you're seeing cryptos outperform. Does this continue? We think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bitcoin, from a technical perspective, is forming what's called a pennant right now. And a pennant is when you have... Think of a, a pennant flag, so you have kind of it's like a triangle, sideways mm-hmm. triangle, right? yep now that triangle is defined by higher or uh, lower highs converging on higher lows. Mm-hmm. so you get this kind of convergence pattern. that can either be bullish or bearish because when the pennant converges, technically speaking, you either get a breakdown or a breakout. The breakdown happens normally when Bitcoin enters comes into that pennant from a downtrend. Uh The breakout usually happens when the asset comes in from an uptrend. Uh When it comes to Bitcoin, uh, it depends what time horizon you're looking at. If you're looking at a three-month window, it's coming into this pennant from a downtrend. If you're looking at a three-year window, it's coming into this pennant from an uptrend. So Uh whether or not this is a breakout or breakdown, technically speaking, whether or not this pennant results in a breakout or breakdown, technically speaking, depends on your time horizon. So we could see it either break out or break down. What is going to determine whether or not it breaks out or breaks down is going to be the development of risk appetites over the next few weeks. And we think that is going to be favorable and therefore Bitcoin is is braced for a pretty big breakout to the $50,000 level or higher Mm -hmm. over the next few weeks and months. And if that does happen, a big if, but if it Mm -hmm. does happen, then altcoins should be even bigger gainers because Mm -hmm. as we all know, altcoins are basically just leverage plays on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin goes up 10%, alts are probably gonna go up 15. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin goes up 25, alts maybe go up 45. Alts just go up more than Bitcoin when Bitcoin goes up and they mm-hmm. go down more when Bitcoin goes down. So um, if you're looking to play this breakout, you know I think it's a good time to selectively buy some high quality alts that have been washed out mm-hmm. and wait and see if we do get this breakout. Or mm-hmm. if you're more risk adverse, wait for confirmation of the breakout. Mm-hmm wait for this pennant to actually confirm that it's a breakout and once it does confirm it's a breakout then you can come in and buy the alts you'll miss a little bit of gain but you'll definitely save yourself from some downside uh potential
1: mm-hmm. do you ever look at alts separately from bitcoin or do you always correlate the two together the way you just described
0: um alts track bitcoin especially in this mm-hmm. environment
1: uh-huh. uh
0: uh there are meme coins that well perform in the absence of Bitcoin performing well. Mm-hmm. As you know, I don't do meme coins. No. <laughs> uh, I do, you know, high quality altcoin projects. Um, mm-hmm. Those have a very strong correlation with Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin's not working, alts are not going to work. So okay. I, what I do from an analysis perspective is I try to figure out, okay, where's Bitcoin going? Mm-hmm. Where's Bitcoin going to trend? then if Bitcoin is, in our outlook, going to trend in a positive direction, then we have this whole shopping list of alts that we mm-hmm. like. Then we start buying into that shopping list. Got it. But if we think Bitcoin is going to trend lower or, or be in trouble over the next few weeks or months, mm-hmm. we're just going to keep that shopping list as a shopping list. And we're mm-hmm. not going to buy because the chances that an alt outperforms when Bitcoin is dropping uh-huh. Very slim odds are not in your favor. I like to invest when the odds are stacked in my
1: favor. i ready for
0: Bitcoin to to work, and when Bitcoin works, then I'm going to go shop with my
1: alts. Got it. Well, uh we're going to wrap things up real quick with some fan questions. uh First off, mm-hmm. from our boy Rob Norman, who leaves a comment every week, and we love you, Rob, for that. Uh, with your estimates for inflation coming down and Fed rate hikes changing to a more bearish viewpoint, are you still bullish for twenty two? I know that you're bullish for the long term, but will we make any progress over the next nine months?
0: So I think we answered this question in the or addressed this question in the mm-hmm. in this call. And that is yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that it's the certainty that matters, not the mm-hmm. magnitude or number of rate hikes. It's the certainty that matters. And also in that perspective, I think what we have to realize is the entire market is benchmarked to higher rates. So mm-hmm. The S&P 500 is trading at around 21 times trailing earnings. Mm-hmm. That's about a 4.8% earnings yield. Mm-hmm. The 10-year treasury yields at around 2.3. So that is a 250 basis point equity risk premium spread, the spread between the earnings yield and the fixed income yield. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a 250 basis point equity risk premium spread. That is historically pretty normal under the current circumstances. I think I wrote it down because I just did this research, uh, yes, two days ago. Was it yesterday? I forget. I do a lot of things every day. (laughs) Um, Yeah, here. So during the last rate hike cycle from 2016 Mm -hmm. to 2018, that average spread was 240 basis points. Since Mm -hmm. 2000, the average spread has been about 250 basis points. Mm -hmm. And since 1980, when the 10 year treasury yield is above 2% the average spread is about 280 basis points. Mm -hmm. So we're at 250 today Mm -hmm. with a 10 year above 2% and in a rate hike cycle. Historically speaking, that's a pretty normal spread, meaning valuations on the broader market already appear benchmarked to higher rates. That's good news. That means we will likely not get any more equity multiple compression um, from the stock market over the next nine months to Rob's question. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then even further, if we go down in the hyper-growth stocks, those have been beaten up more mm-hmm. than the broader indices. So if the broader indices are already benchmarked to higher rates, then one could very reasonably argue, and we believe it is the right argument to make, that hypergrowth tech stocks are benchmarked to absurdly higher rates. Mm-hmm. Meaning that unless we go absolutely bananas on rates and the Fed starts hiking 50 bps every single meeting for the next nine meetings, then we're going to see... The uh, equity multiples, the valuation multiples on hypergrowth tech stocks expand in 2022, mm-hmm. which could lead to further gains uh, on those stocks. So, yes, I am, despite the fact that the Fed is, is getting pretty hawkish, mm-hmm. and despite the fact that I do think they're going to follow through on a lot of that hawkish rhetoric, mm-hmm. um, I am very bullish on hypergrowth tech stocks for not the long haul, but also the remainder of 2022. It feels like a bounce back is in the cards.
1: Got it. Uh, holy Sniper. Uh, asks, to stock picker Luke Lango, what's the average number of stocks a person should hold in their portfolio?
0: Great question, yeah. I mean, it really depends on the time and situation, Mm -hmm. but I would say a good number is about 20. Mm -hmm. Why? I like the number 20. Okay. Uh, No, 20 feels like a good number because it gives you exposure to a lot of different assets. It gives you some diversification, uh, much diversification. Yet still kind of constitute your portfolio on, you know, not 50, 60, 70, 80 stocks, talking like ETF. So mm-hmm. I would say 20 stocks is a is a good allocation for portfolios, but in certain markets, like I would say in this market, mm-hmm. going above that, going to 40 or 50 is actually not a bad thing okay. because. What we see happening is a rising tide that's gonna lift all boats. And we see the tech hypergrowth tech stocks being really undervalued and beaten up right now Mm -hmm. with a lot of rebound potential over the next 12 months, next 24 months, next 36 months. Mm -hmm. Buying a ton of those today and then just slowly selling them as they bounce. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a really good strategy. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to expand, now would be a good time to expand. But uh, under normal circumstances, keeping that portfolio 10, 20, 30, it's a pretty good range.
1: Got it. All right. Uh, Last question. Mia T, uh, Luke, what's your thoughts on Coinbase and PayPal? I like that both stocks slash companies are dealing with crypto.
0: Uh, Unpopular opinion of the podcast. I do not like Coinbase. Okay. It feels like... They are an intermediary Mm -hmm. in an industry Mm -hmm. that's all about Mm disintermediating intermediaries. Okay. So why should they exist? Mm -hmm. I think that over the long haul, there is a potential for Coinbase to be disintermediated by a blockchain based exchange. Okay. And if that does happen, then Coinbase will become significantly smaller and less valuable than it is today. So for that reason, I have very much avoided Coinbase stock over the past Mm -hmm. few months, despite my overall bullishness on tech stocks, despite my overall bullishness on cryptos, I've avoided Mm -hmm. Coinbase in particular because it just doesn't, it strikes me as odd that in an industry that's all about disintermediation, you have this intermediary that's gonna be the 400 pound gorilla. Mm -hmm. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think that in an industry that's about disintermediation, cryptos, the exchange of choice for Mm -hmm. crypto people is going to be an exchange built on the blockchain with no Mm -hmm. fees. That feels like the future to me, not Coinbase. And Mm -hmm. for that reason, I personally have avoided Coinbase and am not super bullish on it. Having said that, because I've avoided it, I am not exceptionally up to date on everything that is happening at the company, and they may very well be making some very interesting moves that I am mm-hmm. simply not aware of um so I wouldn't the take principle my in opinion.
1: itself just kind of seems
0: yeah the the principle in one itself seems kinda kind of strange but I, I wouldn't take my opinion as uh a very good one you know <laughs> i I think there are people that are much more very honest. About <laughs> no, really, I mean, I, I, I'll i let you know what I'm informed on. I The yeah. stocks that we talk about here, I study, like, you know, I know like the back of my hand mm-hmm. and I will go toe to toe with anybody on those stocks because yeah. I feel like I know as much about them as anybody in the world. Mm-hmm. Coinbase, yeah. honestly, just on a first glance when, when the S1 was filed, I wasn't that interested. And so mm-hmm. I really haven't followed up on it since because I'm like, this is not a very, I think it's gonna disintegrate in the long run. Because yeah. of that, I haven't followed up on it uh, very closely. Mm -hmm. That's why my Coinbase opinion is more of a high level and I would say rudimentary opinion Mm -hmm. than one that has really been fleshed out. Uh, But having said that, there is a reason I was bearish from the get-go and I remain bearish today on Mm -hmm. that high level principle. And PayPal? Well, PayPal, sorry. Uh, Yeah, I like PayPal. I do like PayPal. Um, I think that the difference between PayPal and Coinbase is PayPal One has already established itself as a very large player um, Mm -hmm. in, in fintech. And two, they are not dealing exclusively in cryptos and therefore are not dealing exclusively with an audience that wants disintermediation, that wants um, Mm -hmm. to get rid of intermediaries. So I think because of those two things, PayPal has a much brighter outlook than Mm -hmm. Coinbase. Um, PayPal stock is also much cheaper than Coinbase stock at the current moment. And I think that if you were going to buy one of them, I would go with PayPal stock over uh, Coinbase stock uh, today.
1: All right, well, as always, Luke, another great discussion. Do you have uh, any last words before we wrap? Do
0: we have any last words before we wrap? Dramatic pause. Yeah. Dramatic finishes. No, Aaron. No, I nothing.
1: Don't... I tapped you out today, we huh?
0: Did. Yeah, uh, we. I mean, we talked about a lot. We covered a lot of
1: ground, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, no. yeah? yeah. Anything? Anything?
0: Yeah. Uh, I like what the market's doing. Okay. I'm very happy with what the market's doing. No, I if I were going to have some final thoughts here, it would be that it does earnestly feel like the rebound is here. We're at a turning point. We're at a turning point. Mm-hmm. I think we could see one more final leg lower, mm-hmm. but... The fact of the matter is my base case is we have either already bottomed or are very close to a bottom in terms mm-hmm. of price and time. Mm-hmm. And that the rally is forming slash just around the corner slash just here. Now is a time, in my opinion, to get pretty bullish. Um, I mean, I was bullish last week going into the Fed meeting. I'm still mm-hmm. bullish. Today. I, I think it's a good time to get bullish. The price action is shaping up. You're getting the insider buying. The valuations feel benchmarked. Um, the macroeconomic risk appear to be fading. The Fed's in the rearview mirror. There's a lot of things shaping up to get me pretty excited mm-hmm. about where, and specifically, hypergrowth tech stocks mm-hmm. are going to trend over the next twelve months. Obviously, as mm-hmm. Rob Norman said earlier, yep, we are very bullish long term. Always have been, mm-hmm. but the near term outlook, it's been hazy, mm-hmm. starting to clear up in a very bullish way. So if I were to leave viewers with one thing, it would be that mm-hmm. things are starting to really improve on the near-term outlook for hypergrowth tech stocks. And we're excited.
1: Well, I am definitely excited to continue these discussions to kind of see where we're gonna be next week and in the next uh, 9 to 12 months. And I want to thank everybody for listening. If you have any comments or questions for Luke, please, please leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you may want us to cover and if we can answer any of your burning questions like our boy Rob Norman. Uh, until then, please do not forget to like and subscribe and we will see you next week. Bye all.